the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, tea leaves from the little shop at the end of the local cluster line, known for their prognostication value, turn out to predict the future, but only for things that you already figured would happen anyway. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk again with Eric Flint about his new Ring of Fire series entry, a solo entry, 1637, The Polish Maelstrom. This is a mainline Ring of Fire novel from Eric that is all about his dowdy West Virginians thrust back in time who are now involved in trying to liberate Poland from its horrible oligarchs, or at least prevent a terrible pogrom of the Jews, um, which is scheduled to come in 15 years if they don't do something about it. And we find out what happens between the Turks and the Austrians and uptimers at the Siege of Linz. So that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, of course. Now here's the news. Hey, the April E-Arcs are here. Now, an E-Arc is the sound a pampered poodle makes when it realizes that this place, with all this stainless steel tables, has medicine on the shelf. And it's not the groomers. No, 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 that's not what an E-Arc is at all. An E-Arc is an advanced reading copy that you can buy in ebook form at Bain eBooks only. We sell these ahead of time so that you can get your favorite series entry as early as possible. These have typos in them. They haven't been proofread yet. They are essentially the same sort of uh, galleys that we send out to reviewers and such, but they come out months earlier than the print editions. Now out in eARC is River of Night by John Ringo and Mike Massa. Hey, this is the second entry in this continuation of the Black Tide Rising series that Mike Massa and John Ringo are doing, which chronicles the, uh, the brother of the main character of the mainline Black Tide Rising series. At Tom Smith's previous gig, he was the global managing director for security of an international bank, then the zombies emerged, and New York burned. His plan to save the city long enough to find a cure for the zombie virus didn't work out as planned. But Tom and a few trusted allies were able to escape. That was last book. Now in this one, they seek a refuge in the bank's prepared evacuation retreat in the Cumberland Valley of Tennessee. Between them and relative safety are hundreds of miles of clogged roads, burnout towns, and howling mobs of infected humans who only know hunger, and hunger for other humans, of course. They're zombies. And if Tom does pull off this journey, no one is sure how they are going to restart civilization. But even for that, Tom has the spark of an idea. Also out in New York in April is Mark of Cain by Charles E. Gannon. Lays a trail through dangerous worlds. Cain Riordan has finally received the message he's been waiting for, a summons to visit the alien Dornani, who still have his mortally wounded love Elena Cochran in their advanced medical facilities. But the Dornani are in chaos and have lost track of Elena's surgical cryocell. Now Riordan must blaze a trail through dying in dangerous worlds to find her. And finally out in the York 
is this cool new debut novel by T.C. McCarthy. It's called Tiger Burning. War will come. Will Earth be ready? Mong is used to being hunted. As the last dream warrior, a member of a Burmese military unit whose brains are more machine than gray matter, everyone wants him dead, punished for the multiple atrocities his unit committed during war. But then an alien race makes its presence known on Earth and threatens to annihilate humankind, and this gives Mong a chance to escape. Mong travels to the farthest reaches of the solar system where he uncovers a lost secret weapon system that may help his people redeem themselves and may just prove the salvation of the human race. Tiger Burning by T.C. McCarthy E. York, Mark of Cain E. York by Charles E. Gannon, and River of Night by John Ringo and Mike Massa are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint talking about 1637, the Polish Maelstrom. Part one can be found last time on the podcast. I want to welcome Eric Flint back to the podcast. Hey, Eric. Hi. Great to have you back again. And this time we're going to talk about um, a solo Ring of Fire novel. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over 3 million, uh, really it's science fiction, over 3 million books in print. He's the author creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with the uh, first novel, 1632. David Drake, he wrote the popular Belisarius alternate Roman history series and some others with David. But David Weber collaborated on 1633 and 1634, the Baltic War and the Ring of Fire series, and on three novels in the Honorverse, such as Cauldron of Ghosts. Um, Eric's latest Ring of Fire novel, before the one we're going to talk about, uh, the latest solo one is 1636, The Ottoman Onslaught, and if I'm not mistaken, this is the direct sequel to that. Uh, Eric was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives near, and there's a labor union activist character in this book that's pretty uh, prominent, by the way. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, he lives near Chicago in, uh, in Indiana, though, <laughs> out there in the old steel mill district. One other thing I wanted to mention before, uh, I wanted to, to ask you about Lens, but, um, I'll, you you have a really uh, touching uh, sort of interlude in here where Mike Stern's mother um, passes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Or well, <laughs> the reason I put it in the book is that uh, I, I knew I had to do it at some point. I mean, she, it, she if you go back to the very beginning of the series, I mean, she never figures in the series. She's never been a a character who ever appears on stage, but uh, Mike Stern's father died long before the, the the series begins. But his mother's still alive, but she's quite ill. She's she's um, she's sickly. She's an invalid. She's got all kinds of things wrong with her. And you know, we've gotten years after the Ring of Fire now, and I just felt that you know and some point I had to have her die, you know, and it just seemed that it would fit well in this book because it's kind of an independent episode. It, it just, um, you know, it, it, it's not part of any adventure. It's just the kind of thing that happens in real life. And, you know, I find that in most adventure series, not all, but most of them, 
things like this are just absent. Um, you know, it, it's just the heroes seem to have no family, or, you know, if they do, they're always off stage. But, you know, he does have a mother, and she's ill, and then she eventually, she dies in this book. And, and he finds out about it as an interlude when he's trying to get out of Italy, and, and uh, he's made it his escape. But uh, Rebecca is in the airship, comes pick him up, and she's the one who tells him, you know, you've got to get the grandson to see your mother. Um, and he arrives. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually writers. <laughs> you really don't want to hang around writers. They'll suck everything out of you. Uh, we really are filter feeders. I, I base that, that episode quite a bit on the death of my sister. Oh, uh, uh, and my own emotions through it. And as I depicted in the book, uh, Mike arrives, his mother's still alive, but she's not conscious any longer. That's what happened when my sister passed. And, you know, it's just, it's meant to be a powerful emotional scene. It doesn't have anything, you know, it, it's it's sort of in there. It's not, it doesn't lead to anything or come from anything. It's not part of any adventure, but it's the kind of thing that human beings go through. In the real world, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I figured this would be a good book to put it in. So, yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. So, uh, well, moving on to Lens. So, there's uh, it, both sides have some airships, right, and, and and airplanes, and there are some new weapons under development. Um, what is where did the Ottomans get these things, and what are their capabilities, and and what are the uh, what are the, I guess it's the the Austro-Hungarian combined with USC troops that are in this under siege? Uh, yeah. Um, yes, it's basically them. The, the Czechs um, have not, uh, they sent one fairly quite strong unit down to help the Austrians. That's uh uh, their general Pappenheim and his—they were called the Black Cuirassiers. They were a, a very powerful force of cavalry. Um, they're down there. Those are the the historical force that saved. Yeah. Uh, no, no, the, um, Vienna, right? Or is that somebody another? No, no, you're you're mixing them up. What happened in the siege in 1684? Uh, what actually saved Vienna was the uh, the Poles, uh, the King of Poland. Uh, um, oh, and I'm blanking on his name. He's one of the famous kings in Poland. Um, and he was elected king, as often happened. And I'm just blanking his name. But he brought the Polish army down. Um, and and they were the ones who actually broke the siege of Vienna uh, in a great big battle with the Ottomans. Um, and if the Poles hadn't intervened, it's quite likely that Vienna would have fallen. Uh, you know, we'll never know, but... Uh, um, right, so these are Bohemians and Lens. These are what? These are Bohemians and Lens. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, the ones that show up, they actually figured quite prominently in the Battle of Breitenfeld, which is depicted in 1632. But now they've, they've, they've switched sides. They're now aligned with the U.S. You know, um, back then they were allied with Austria against the USA. Um, 
which is what had happened in this. This time of war is incredibly chaotic, uh, which is the reason I picked it as the as the uh, the time zone in which I wanted to tell this story. Uh, the Thirty Years' War is one of those wars that that people in the United States don't know much about Europeans do, but people in the United States don't because the wars that military historians like to write about are the ones where you can draw nifty arrows on maps and showing, you know, who went. So World War Two and the Civil War and Napoleon's campaigns, those get written about. 30 Years' War was just sheer chaos. Uh, if you were to try to draw arrows showing where all the armies went over 30 years, it just looked like a bowl of spaghetti. Um, but for my purposes, it served great because I was going to be changing history anyway. I just wanted to have an, uh, an era of, of tremendous upheaval and chaos. Um, so, anyway, uh, in this novel, as has been true in, in Throughout the series, there's you know continual changes in in military technology. Um, it, it's kind of a situation where the Americans bring with them a tremendous amount of scientific and technological knowledge, but the actual technology is way way far behind being able to catch up to it. So what you get are all kinds of interesting hybrid technologies of taking very advanced concepts, and then figuring out how you how best you could possibly apply them to a technology is still pretty primitive. Um, in the case of the Ottomans, um, Ottoman technology tended to be uh, lag behind European, or at least the most advanced European countries. But the Ottomans were a very well-organized empire, and they had enormous resources. So the basic strategy they're following is the model I use is the, is the strategy the Russians followed in World War II is they didn't try to match the sophistication of German military technology. What they did make were, were fairly simple uh, equipment that worked and they made a lot of it. Um, so the T-34 tank in World War II, the Russian tank, was not the equal one-on-one -on -one to the German Panther or German Tiger, but it was a very effective functional tank, and they made a lot of them. And they did the same with the Storm of the Plains. They did the same. That was the way they approached it. And the Ottomans are doing much the same thing. Um, they're not trying to come up with, you know, really top of the line, you know, uh, the cutting edge of whatever technology is possible at the time because they recognize the limitations. But what they do come up with works, and it's and they're a very well-organized regime. They're, they're better organized than European countries are. Um, they are very efficient, uh, official them. Um, and they have a lot of resources, so they make a lot of these things. Um, so they have by far the biggest airship fleet in the world. Uh, the airships are smaller than the, the one big one that the uh, that the USC has. It's actually um, made by the Dutch, and um, so you know the same thing happens. And then there's another. I don't want to 
get too far into it, it'll be a spoiler, but there's a big technological change happens in this novel, in the Polish maelstrom, um, that is obviously going to revolutionize aerial combat. Um, and <clears throat> that happens in this book. Hmm? And Julie McKay has something to do with it. And Julie McKay is right in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, who we've met. Got a very prominent, <laughs> prominent adventures in this novel, just as she did in Ottoman Onslaught. Um, she's a very good shot. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, um, it goes further than that, but yeah, she begins as a marksman who actually was able to um, beat off the um, the original. Um, Ottoman airship attack on Lynch back in Ottoman onslaught, and she's still doing the same thing in this book. But then things change. Um, yeah. And I don't want to go in. That would be a spoiler. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, There's a. Yeah. But yeah, she is a major character. In yeah. Well, what else do we need to say about Polish Maelstrom? And I wanted to get an update on uh, other other of your projects as well. Well, uh, the only thing I'd say about Polish Maelstrom, because, you know, people ask me how, you know, because it's a huge series now. It's up to well over 20 novels and 12 big anthologies of short fiction and a magazine that's been running for 12 years. There's two ways you can uh, get into the series. There's a comprehensive way where you just read all the novels sort of sequentially and... um, I've got a recommended reading list, a reading order, if you want to look at it. Uh, it's been published in several of the books, but the easiest way to get it online is just go to uh, uh, the 1632 fan website, which uh, I always forget the uh, the URL, but just Google 1632, you'll find it. And the, <laughs> I think it's 1632.org. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's it, yeah. And it's got, um, in the menu, it's probably displayed, it's a recommended reading order, which I just updated, in fact. Um, and that will show the two different ways. You can read it comprehensively. The other simpler way to read it is to just start by reading what I call the mainline novels, which are sort of the spinal cord of the whole series. And then you can go back and read whatever you might be interested in that branches off. And the the mainline novels, there are seven of them now, and five of them are written by me solo, and two of them are written by me and David Weber. Uh, it's an easy way to just spot it. If, if it's a solo novel by me, it's a mainline novel, um, at, thus far at any rate. And anyway, it's 1632, 1633, 1634, the Baltic War, 1635, the Eastern Front, 1636, the Saxon Uprising, 1636, the Ottoman Onslaught, and now 1637, the Polish Maelstrom. So it's the latest in the series of, of the mainline novels. Um, and what makes a mainline is partly that it's where most, not all, but most of the major political and military developments are depicted. And it follows four, five really key characters that have been key, six, that have been key all the way through the series. And those are three couples, basically. It's Mike Stearns, Rebecca Brabinell, uh, Gretchen Richter, and Jeff Higgins, and Julie Sims, and Alex McKay. And those characters appear in those novels. 
they often show up in other novels, but these are the novels where they're, you know, the central character. So that's basically a summary of Polish Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's great, and, and it is quite possible to, uh, I mean, you could get in the series there if you wanted to. Oh, I, I write all of these books. Um, I, I got the advice from David Drake way back beginning my career. He said, here's how you got to write your books. Because David has also worked in big, long-running series. He's got a Lord of the Owl series. went on for 10 volumes, if I remember right. But he said, imagine somebody racing to catch a plane to Tokyo. And they just have time to run a newsstand, and your book catches their eye just because something about the cover intrigues them. They grab the book, um, buy it, and they get on the plane. They really don't have much idea what it is. And they start reading it and discover they can't make any sense out of it because it's in the middle of a series, but the way it's written, they just can't understand what's happening. They said they will remember your name not positively. Um, so you've got to give people a book that is comprehensible, and it's they will realize when they get into it that there's a big backstory. But you can still read that book, even if it's the very first book they ever in the series. You can make sense of that book. You can understand it. Uh, you can follow mm-hmm. it from the beginning to you know you'll realize there's a whole big backstory. And if you enjoyed the book, hopefully you'll go back and start reading it from the beginning. But I try to make each book comprehensible in its own right. And I think I succeed. Yeah. So what uh, what's coming up? What uh, I we were talking uh, a bit before about the. Go ahead. Uh, the the next books coming uh, out in the series are going to be the next one coming out is uh, is coming out in September. It's called Sixteen Thirty Six: The China Venture, which I wrote with Ivor Cooper, who's written a number of stories and. Um, centered in the Far East, and this is a story of an expedition that's sent by the United States of Europe to China. And China's in a very um, uh, critical part of its own history, which is we're right in the very last years of the Ming Dynasty, which in real history is about to collapse and be replaced by the Manchu Dynasty. Um, We're still a few years away from it, uh, but not very many. And so it's it's a kind of period where things can change. Uh, you know, it's it's not stable. Um, and so our mission, or it's just a relatively small number of people. It's a trade mission. They travel to China, have various adventures along the way, and then they arrive in China. And they wind up getting connected with another main character who's developed for the first time in this book, who is a young a Chinese, uh, a young scholar who's trying to pass the exams to, to be able to become one of Mandarin, and he gets involved with them. And the other character gets involved with them was a very real character in Chinese, a fascinating guy uh, who. He was called a pirate, but what he really was was a maritime warlord. Um, I mean, he was very powerful. He had a powerful fleet, and he eventually became uh, an official. Within the, They just basically made him an official so they could get rid of him as a pirate. Um, so he's an official in the Ming Dynasty of Fukien province, which is an interesting part of China that's, that's kind of 
separated by mountains from, from most of the rest of China. So we get into that, and he gets connected with the Americans, and and there are various adventures that happen uh, along the way. There's a whole spin-off adventure that I've written, which was published by Ring of Fire Press, which is called uh, The Chrysanthemum, uh, 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 The Crown of the Dragon. And... Um, that's a spinoff that's kind of connected to this novel. But anyway, that's uh, what the China Venture novel is. And it's the first novel that's taken place in China, the series, and opens up another area. The one coming out next is is uh, written by David Carrico, and it's two short novels put together. Um one of them, it's called 1636, The Flight of the Nightingale. And um, that's the first novel which involves a um, an artist in Italy, a woman artist who's uh, famous. She's real. I mean, she's real. She actually exists. And her uh, decision uh, to try to escape from Florence, where she's not exactly a captive, but but kind of, I mean, she's sort of a court painter, and she wants to move to the USA. So it involves her adventures trying to escape. Uh, and then the second uh, short novel is, the title is Box of the Future, um, box spelled B-A-C-H, uh-huh. and it involves <laughs> one of one of Johann Sebastian Bach's uh, ancestors, Bach himself isn't born at the famous Bach. Joe Sebastian born in 1685, but this guy is one of the Bach family, who were very prominent musicians. I mean, Johann Sebastian Bach's the best known of them, but there were a number of them. He's one of the ancestors, and he gets involved with uh, American musicians, and, and it's 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 basically a love story, um, but it involves a lot of what David has written quite a bit about is because uh, he knows a great deal about mu- music himself, is about the whole way the Ring of Fire impacts music, which is pretty enormous. So it's those two novels put together, and they're both short. Put together, it's a big, thick book. It's called uh, 1636, The uh, Light of the Nightingale, and it'll be coming out in November. The next book in the series could be one of two. I'm not sure which one will come out first. Um, and they, their publication date hasn't been set yet. Except the first one's called 1636, The Atlantic Encounter, which I wrote with Walter Hunt. Now, we finished the first draft. We just it, just uh, chunks of it need to rewrite and some additions and so on and so forth. That's why we haven't published it. Um and also it would have been a little premature. I didn't want to get too far ahead of uh, of uh, uh, what was happening in the New World. But uh, Walter and I, in fact, I just talked to him on the phone this morning. We're, we're going to do some rewriting of that. And Bain has got it tentatively penciled in for the second trimester of next year, 2020. That. That, that's how Bain schedules its production, working with their distributor, Simon & Schuster's, and trimesters. And the second trimester will be May, June, July, August. So I don't know when that book will come out, but it should come out somewhere in that period. 
except it's possible. We don't know yet because he just started on a first draft. But Chuck Gannon and I, who've written three novels now, series, are working on the sequel to 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. And the sequel is called 1637 No Peace Beyond the Line. And it's the, you know, it's a direct sequel to Commander Cantrell follows Eddie Cantrell and his various further adventures in Caribbean. I don't know when that book will be finished because we've just gotten started on it, but it, it, it may be they decide to put that book out in the second trimester and then Atlantic Encounter in the third. I think what they're more likely to do is put uh, Atlantic Encounter first and then put out, uh, no Peace Beyond the Line, in which case it would appear in the last third trimester of next year, about, uh, you know, September, October, November, December, somewhere in there. I'm guessing, but I think that's what's most likely. Um, yeah. And that's as far as there's another book that's been written um, that's almost finished, and it's I'm not directly involved in it, I did help uh, editing it, but it's called uh, uh, Colomar's War, which is written by Chuck Gannon and Robert Waters, and it's a book in the series that takes place in the Caribbean and connects up to the other Caribbean adventures for writing, and they've, they've almost got it finished. They finished the first draft. Actually, I think they finished the second draft and they're working on the fourth draft. Um, that hasn't been turned into Bane yet, though, and I don't know when Bane We'll schedule it hopefully some point next year. So there's quite a bit coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, um, and then the next mainline book will actually be written with me and Chuck together. And um, the tentative working title I've got is 1637, The Adriatic Decision. Um, and that will be simultaneously a sequel, direct sequel, published Maelstrom, and the. Uh, uh, 1637, no truth, no peace beyond the line, which is that's why we've got to wait till we get that one finished because if you can't tell, we'll figure it out. And we have a start work. Very on. cool. That'll be the next. That'll be, I know, I'm, I, there's a ton of stuff. That'll be the next mainline book, but it probably won't be written for another year and a half, somewhere like that. It takes yeah. about two, well, years, also, uh, two and a half years between mainline books. Yeah. Yeah, tell us about Castle of Fire also, it's, which is not a Ring of Fire novel. No, that's not a Ring of Fire novel at all. It's a cross between author history and fantasy, and it's part of a series that uh, I, I developed with uh, uh, Kevin Anderson, and it's me, Kevin, Walter, Sarah Hoyt, um, and um, a, a couple of writers um, people are not real familiar with, I, Tim Colin, and... Um, Peter Wax, and the premise for that series is it, it, it's not a series in a sense of one, two, three, four volumes. It's more like a joint, a combined um, uh, world that we created that we'll each telling stories in. And the basic premise is that when Halley's Comet passes the Earth in 1759, it has a Different. It actually impacts the Earth. Or, well, we're not sure of an impact or not, but it 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 has some kind of powers that the effect it has on on the planet is what we call the sundering, which is that the new world is separated from the old world. Um, 
there's a whole chain of very mysterious mountains right up in mid Atlantic, and nobody can get past them. And we're not clear yet what's in the Pacific, but basically, at least North America and the Caribbean are separated from the rest of the world. We're not sure about South America because nobody, we don't know what's happening there. The, the book, the, the stories focus on North America. And the first book in the series that I've been written is published in May. And that's by um, Kevin Anderson of Sarah Hoy. It's called The Uncharted. It's called Uncharted. And uh, it, it won the uh, uh, Dragon Award for uh, Best Author in History um, last year. And what it follows is an alternate Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, the other effect the Sundering has, in addition to separating the New World from the Old World, is magic begins to emerge in the New World. Uh, and all kinds of magical powers emerge, monsters, you know, and it's mostly based on Native American, uh, African mythology, and also in a different kind of way on a lot of European mythologies. Uh, in other words, the people who are living there, it's based on their different kinds of mythologies. And Council of Fire takes place about 40 years before Uncharted. It happens right at the event itself, the Sundering. And what happens is that a, a the British uh, expedition that had in real history been sent to conquer Canada under uh, General Wolfe, and that in real history it was General Wolfe who did conquer Canada in the famous battle outside of Quebec where both he and Montcalm were killed. Um, but what happens here is a lot of his troops never make it across the Atlantic, and there's a, uh, only a few British warships make it across the Atlantic. And there's all kinds of uh, things that blow open in the Iroquois Confederacy. Two of the major characters are uh, real figures in history, Molly Brandt and Joseph Brandt, her brother, uh, who were Iroquois. And uh, they're prominent characters in it. Uh, there is uh, prominent uh, um, black characters who, who, some slaves, some not, who, because they're being affected by the thing as well. And hmm. it sounds like it's a in, upstate New York book. Huh? It's very much concentrated in New York and New York City is this, the focus. Oh, okay. This stuff happens like, happens in Canada, too, along the St. Lawrence Seaway, and there's things that happen in the Caribbean, because one ship winds up down the Caribbean, uh, gets to Jamaica, and has all kinds of adventures in Jamaica with, with revenants that we call zombies, or not exactly that. Um, and then it culminates in a great battle. Um, in, uh, in fact, the cover is a wonderful cover illustration. It takes place at that battle. Um uh, where forces in the western uh, western part of the Iroquois, Iroquois Confederacy breaks, and the Seneca and the Cayuga uh, rise up with, with Indian tribes further west than that. And they're trying to drive the whites completely out. It's, it's sort of, uh, it's kind of Pontiac's war, except with a lot of magic piled onto it and, and really... Creepy monsters, both out of uh, and, uh, out of Indian as well as African mythology. Uh, it's it was a lot of fun to write, <laughs> and uh, I'm very happy with it. So is Walter, and that'll be coming out in November. 
and um, assuming yeah. it, it, you know, assuming sales are good, we'll certainly continue with the adventures of the various characters who appear in that series. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, out now at bookstores everywhere, at booksellers everywhere, is 1632, The Polish Maelstrom by Eric Flint, um, which is part of the Ring of Fire series. Eric, thank you once again for uh, talking to us about um, about this novel. All right. Thank you very much. That was part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint talking about 1637, The Polish Maelstrom. Part one of the interview can be found last time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts, until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 23 Vidal City stretched before Amand, hundreds of lights and tens of thousands of lives, all beneath him, literally and figuratively. As an honored high-status guest, the Grand Inquisitor had asked for one entire tower of the Great House, as his temporary residence. He told them that he preferred to be above the odor of the city, and thus required the highest possible altitude. Normally these rooms were reserved for the Thakur's immediate family, but the local authorities had been quick to grant his request. Unlike most men of his status, Omand didn't care about personal comfort. A humble inn would have done just as well, but he'd been curious to see if they'd oblige his extreme request. It was good to occasionally test various great house families to make sure they were sufficiently frightened of his office. The Vidal Castle was ancient, constructed in the days when man could still cross the seas, though most of it had been torn down by demons, then rebuilt during the Age of Kings. There were still spots on the walls where the original carvings had been defaced to remove the likenesses of the old forbidden gods. Though Armand could trace the dusty outlines with his fingertips and guess at what they'd shown. Most people were unaware that there had been a multitude of different religions to choose from before the Age of Kings, 
and from the shape of the scars in the stone, he could tell that the tribe who had gone on to become the Vidal had been one of the strange ones who'd worshipped the god with an elephant's head and the blue lady with four arms. Amand chuckled at their foolishness and moved on. The Vidal Tower wasn't nearly as magnificent as anything in the capital, but it would suffice. The important thing was that the roof made for an excellent place to hold a clandestine meeting. Amand looked up when he heard the beating of huge wings. A giant obsidian vulture materialized from the darkness overhead and landed smoothly on top of the tower. Still in motion, twisting and smoking, feathers melted into steel and talons turned into boots. Within a few steps, the bird was gone and a man in shining armor stood before him. Armand was impressed. His own magic was stronger, but Sikasa was extremely gifted. The assassin bowed to the Grand Inquisitor. Good evening, my lord. I like the uniform, a very nice touch. He spread his arms, proudly displaying the Lamellar armor of the Protector Order. A rare and expensive collector's item but an elaborate plot requires a meticulous dedication to detail. Sicasso lifted his eyes. They were still glowing from the after-effect of the transformation. Ashok has escaped the prison. Of course he had. That man is as reliable as the sunset. If you'd realized he was truly as devoted to the law as everyone made him out to be, you wouldn't have needed to bring me along. Perhaps, Amand mused. But every man, even Ashok, has a limit to his devotion. If there was any imperfection in Kuhl's work, and even a scrap of conscience remains, then you will prove most vital. The wars didn't even slow him. As you predicted, no alarms were raised. He's running south staying off the roads and sticking to the fields. The route he's taking, the only place to cross the river, is at Satpo Bridge. He's making excellent time and should be there by dawn. That's splendid news. This wasn't familiar territory, but Amand had memorized the locations and strengths of every garrison, Vidal and its neighbors both. Stupo was strong, but not too strong. He couldn't have asked for a better location. Are you prepared for what's next? Sikasso feigned insult. As one artist to another, you wound me, Inquisitor. Are you ready for my men to proceed? The local judge is floating face down in the river. The Arbiter Superior will be found in his stateroom sometime tomorrow, missing his head. I have a hunch that orders from the capital saying Ashok is to be executed will be found in his desk. But as for his head, Oman spread his hands apologetically. I'm not sure where that wound up. So, yes, I do believe there is no turning back now. The assassin nodded. Just don't forget our deal. Then Sikasa took several fast steps and leapt over the side of the tower. 
don't forget our deal. Amand chuckled. He was staging a coup. There had been so many bargains struck, with so many nefarious groups and dark forces, that it was becoming a challenge to keep track of them all. He walked to the edge and looked down. A black shadow flew over the castle wall before disappearing into the darkness. The Grand Inquisitor leaned on the parapet and studied the city. Because of the smoke and steam rising from the workers' district, he couldn't make out the Coldstream Prison's watchfires from here. There was no way he could see his plans unfold, and that saddened him a bit. Amand had been waiting a long time for this. Deciding the air was too chill, he returned to the stairs, content in the knowledge that by morning, the actions of his pawns would shake Great House Vidal to its foundations. And as news spread, it would strike fear into all of the houses. In time, everything would be destabilized, and it would take a firm hand and strong leadership to restore order. It was a tragedy. A great revolution had just begun, and Omand was the only one who knew about it. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Victoria Lambert for editing help. And the podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the hammer and sickle flag of the Anchevics, who finally overthrew the hive mind queen and her salubrious minions on Deneb 5. Hey, socialism works after all, it turns out. Plus, praise plaudits and bells of gratitude for the interview to Eric Flint, author of 1637 The Polish Maelstrom. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.